Lord, I thank you for Anthony. Thank you for the message that you've put in his heart for us. Thank you for the authority that you've given him to speak to your church and encourage us uh, and lead us and guide us in the way that we should go. And I pray that as Anthony speaks, you would deepen our relationship with you and deepen our curiosity and our hunger for you and your presence in our lives. And I pray that we would walk away with deeper and truer conviction of who you are. We receive your word. We receive uh, your word from your pastor, Anthony, in Jesus' name. Amen. Anthony, take it away. Wow. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> Justin did not mention that there is a potluck, potluck to celebrate the end of the Bible study in January 2026, correct? It may be 2026. <laughs> Maybe 2027. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a good time. <laughs> oh, it's going to be at the girls' house upstairs. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So before I get started on our message, last week we talked about hope. I'm kind of kind of ripping off Advent a little bit, the hope and the faith and that kind of thing. Last week I talked about hope, but from the viewpoint of what if my life looks hopeless? What if it looks like it's actually the worst time ever? And you're right. What then? And we talked about how God brings hope into even that situation. This week we're talking about faithfulness. But not our faithfulness to God. We're going to talk about how Christmas specifically demonstrates God's faithfulness to us. But it's surprising. It doesn't look like it. we might want it to look and wish it to look like. Does that make sense? And I have to disappoint people who like practical applications for the message. Tonight, there is not one. The application is a different outlook on God's faithfulness. What I hope is a more biblically correct outlook on God's faithfulness that will actually help us navigate life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Excellent. Let's jump in. First, we have to start where I believe the Christmas story, which is actually the Easter story, actually starts, which is the book of Jeremiah. Okay? So, in Jeremiah chapters 21 and 22, there's a lot of really bleak stuff in the book of Jeremiah. Okay? But... <laughs> Jeremiah, they call him the weeping prophet, and in fact, he did spend a lot of time crying. Why? Because a summary of Jeremiah 21 and 22 reveals that God is telling Jeremiah to prophesy to the people, the last chance has come and gone. You are about to be judged. You know there are these people called the Babylonians, and you know they're kind of mean, and they're powerful, and they're taking over stuff. You are next. And there's no repenting this time. The city's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. The people are going to ask you, Jeremiah, what do we do? Where do we go? And you're going to tell them to die. <laughs> Hope is gone, okay? This is it, all right? And in Jeremiah 21 and 22, it is just this horribly discouraging, brutal word from God about how this is going to happen. There's no contingency this time. It's for sure. And we're going to pick up at the end of this. Really, it's awful. I mean, it's worth reading because it's awful. It really is worth reading the whole book. And Lamentations as well, which is another book that he wrote. It's the second one. But in Jeremiah 23, there's a turnaround. So we're going to pick up the end of the grimness, and then we're going to see the turnaround. You guys ready? Here we go. Jeremiah 23, 1 and 2. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. The shepherds are the kings, the leaders declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. 
So he's just said, you are going to be absolutely destroyed and ransacked. You haven't taken care of my people. I'm about to take care of you. Thus says the Lord. That's the end. And then in Jeremiah 23, 3, there's this amazing single word. The word is then. Come on, then. After all this nasty stuff happens, then. I myself will gather the remnant. Who's I myself? God. It's God. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. Oh, wow, almost like a shepherd. Almost like an Ezekiel that we read a few weeks ago. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, that was the southern kingdom, and Israel, that's the northern kingdom, will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. He said this again and again, right? The days are coming. There's going to be this bad stuff that happens, but the days are coming. Hmm. When they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them. Then they will live on their own soil. That's Jeremiah 23, 1-8. Rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. The end is nigh, judgment is coming. Huge then. The days are coming when I'm going to gather you back. And I'm going to do a bunch of cool stuff. I've summarized right here. These are some of the major claims. We're going to go through four. Is God faithful or not? Quick question. Yes, yes he is. Excellent. Here are the four things. Oh, no, it's not. I'm out of order on my own slideshow? Oh, no, I'm not. Wow, that's weird. Okay, clicker is malfunctioning. Here are four things in this passage that God said he was going to do that are amazing. God is going to be Israel's shepherd, personally. God is going to raise up a king from David's line that's going to be a Messiah. Judah and Israel will be one again, and this is going to be an event so great that God's people will be defined by it, this event, rather than the exodus from Egypt. Those are some pretty bold claims. So is God faithful to do those things? We can all nod our heads and say, yes, he's faithful, because it's 2019 and we have the Bible, right? We can read the story. Like, <laughs> but if you got that prophecy in 586, you might see things a little differently. Or if you were born in 476 or 376, or heck, 280. Right? I'm not going to go through the whole timeline again. We did it last week. But things do not get better for Israel. The northern kingdom was destroyed in 722. Jeremiah prophesied the southern kingdom is going to follow suit. And in 586, Babylon comes in, destroys everything. The Babylonians are defeated, but not by Israel. They're defeated by the Persians, who conquer the whole area again. And the Persians are defeated too, but not by Israel. By this guy you may have heard of named Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great dies, and then Israel still doesn't get the land. His generals fight over it for a long, long, long time. And finally, one of the really nasty generals desecrates the temple, and the Jews fight a war and shake them off, 
come up for air for a little bit, and then Rome kind of walks over and takes it all over finally in 63 BC. Even though they rebuild the temple, even though they rebuild Jerusalem, even though leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people into repentance and trying to reestablish the law, there is no large-scale return to favor. Almost 600 years of asking, is Yahweh faithful or not? I'm not going to go through this too much because this was all of last week's sermon. But I do want to ask the question, how in the world am I supposed to explain to you that God was faithful by sending a baby to be born in a manger in a tiny town outside of Jerusalem? How exactly does Christmas solve this problem? Because there's a huge 600-year problem that God has made promises that he's supposed to be faithful to fulfill, and he has not done it. People are starting to lose hope. How does Christmas handle that? We're going to go through and we're going to discover that sometimes God is faithful in the last way we would expect. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. Shepherds were equated with kings in the Old Testament and in ancient Near Eastern culture all the time. Yahweh says, shepherds, you stink. I'm going to come down and do the job myself. Count on it. And several prophets said this. Did Jesus fulfill this promise? Yes. I mean, we can nod yes. It's not a trick question. Of course he did, right? But he stands up and says this to a crowd of people in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Right away, they might be asking for a timeout. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I lay down my life for, this, for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's John 10, 11, and 14 to 16. They understood that this was a clear claim to be Yahweh. And if you read this, shortly after this, they try to kill him for that, because he makes himself equal with God. But Jesus, claiming to be Yahweh, acting as the shepherd that's going to gather his people after 600 years of waiting, excuse me, is ridiculous. Because what did they equate shepherds with? Kings, right? And what kind of king would it be that would like go out into the far corners of the earth and wrench back his people? It would be a pretty awesome warrior, would it not? <laughs> Just like every other king that did that kind of thing in yeah. all of Israel's history, right? We've got a Philistine problem, you know? Like, we go, we beat up the Philistines, we take the people. we got a Midianite problem, we beat up the Midianites, we take the land back, right? This is the pattern. An awesome warrior comes and does awesome warrior things. That's the expectation. That is not what they receive. They get Jesus. Now we know here, now, that Jesus did come as the king shepherd. And we know that even though it's not what they expected, it's not what they planned, and it's certainly not what they wanted, what they wanted was a shepherd king to come and sit on an actual throne, probably with an actual crown and maybe even an actual scepter, looking very kingly, and reign. But what Jesus did, even though it was not what they wanted, it was not what they planned, and it was not what they expected, enthrones the shepherd king on every heart that believes in him. Amen. The new covenant promise is not that there would be some new king far off in Israel. 
It said the king would give his very spirit to you. That he would take up residence in you personally and be your shepherd. Not what they expected. That was not in anyone's plans. That wasn't even what they wanted. But it was better. And Jesus fulfilled the promise. Let's look at the next one. A branch from David will reign. How in the world does Christmas fix this problem for God? First of all, the image is, God says to David, David, you're a great king, I love you. You're always going to have a king on the throne. Your line is going to endure forever. A couple generations later, it's the line of David stinks. I'm cutting it off. And yet God does not contradict himself. So what is the problem? The image here is that the line of David is like a stump on the ground. But God is going to cause new life, a branch, to come out of the stump of the line of kings that he cut off that yet will endure forever. So he's saying, I'm going to cause a miraculous son of David to rise up. He's going to have an actual descendant actually reign, even though I'm actually cutting off the throne, because he's actually going to have a line of kings that last forever. Is that confusing? Yes. Which is why the fulfillment was unexpected. Does Jesus fulfill this? He does indeed. When he's about to be crucified, they're trying to decide, okay, I'm Pilate, I have the authority to crucify this guy, what in the world am I crucifying him for? And the Jews are like, well, he's, he says he's a king. Okay, I guess we'll ask him. This is the exchange between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus says to the man who has the authority to crucify him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, listen, this is huge. You say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And then he says famously, all who belong to the truth hear my voice. The truth about what? The truth that he's the king. And that his kingdom is not of this world. That's intense. Problem, though, if you're Israel and you've waited 600 long years for Yahweh to make good on his promise, you've been asking, is God faithful? What do you expect? What, what kind of king is going to come and reign? An actual kingly king, like all the other kings, right? With an actual throne and an actual crown, maybe an actual scepter. He's going to do kingly things. He's going to sit there and, and make laws and things like that. That is not what they get. What they get is Jesus. And again, Jesus' big plan, God's big plan, is to be born in an out-of-the-way place, grow up in an out-of-the-way place, and then show up for about three years and live a life at once so extraordinary that ancient historians take notice, and at the same time so ordinary that if you were to encounter him, you could dismiss him. And then die. Unexpected. That is not what they planned. That is certainly not what they wanted. But we know, sitting here, now, that because the king came and did the cross, instead of setting up shop on an actual throne, he didn't just take some land and make it his domain. He conquered sin and death itself. Hmm. He conquered and took on the wrath of God that was looming over us, you know, just waiting to give us a tragedy like we can't even imagine. He took care of that 
through the cross. He was fighting battles we couldn't even see to become the undefeatable king of a kingdom that cannot be assailed and will never end. Now that might not be what they planned. And that might not be what anyone expected. And it certainly wasn't what they wanted. But it was better. Amen? And so Christmas, which I believe is just the beginning of the Easter story, solves this as well. What about the next claim? We're moving right through here. Israel will be united under one king again. This is a little complicated, and it requires a bit of a history lesson. God wanted to rule over his people Israel, right? One people. But how many of you know that all people are people? And people are complicated, and sometimes they're mean, and they kind of stink. People have not changed, you know, physically and, and mentally. They kind of stink. So, God creates this kingdom of Israel. They have a king named Saul. He's no good. Boo, everybody say, boo, Saul. We don't like him. So, the next king is David. Everybody say, yay, we like David. God likes David too, right? David has a son named Solomon who's, he's iffy. He's not so good, right? He's got all the wisdom and then promptly forgets he has it, you know? So, <laughs> he, he reigns well for a little bit. And then aside from becoming immoral, he's got this thing where he likes to build things. And make his people work as slaves to build his stuff. And, you know, you could swallow a lot for a good king. But maybe when it's time for his son to reign, maybe you talk to this guy and you say, Rehoboam, you know, there were some things that weren't our favorite about your dad. Here's one of those things. You know how he'd take us and make us slave labor to build his stuff? Can we not do that? <laughs> and when King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is about to assume the throne, this is what happens. So you can read about it in 1 Kings. Come on, clicker. I believe it's chapter 12. I can't do it from memory. I'm not that good. There we go. It is. 1 Kings 12, 4 to 5. The people come to this young kid about to be enthroned, and they say this. It might sound familiar. Your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy what? Yoke. yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. The people are promising to serve the king. If he will do what? Lighten their what, specifically? Yoke. Their yoke. It symbolizes the burden that the king was putting on them. Then he said to, said to them, Rehoboam says to them, go away for three days and come back. So they go away, and Rehoboam talks to the advisors, the elders, right? And the elders say, look, if you will humble yourself and be a servant to these people, they will serve you. And he says, that's great. Go get a coffee or something. And he calls the guys that he grew up with. And the guys he grew up with say, teach those people to mouth off to you. You make it harder on them. So three days go by, and he proves he is an idiot. <laughs> three days go by, the king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. I don't know how you do that, but do not sign me up. That's 1 Kings 12, 13 to 14. So you know what the people do? Israel is there waiting to hear what this potential king says to them. He says, forget about it. It's going to be worse than it was before. And so they do what they said they do. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king. What portion do we have in David? This is so important. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. And this is literally what happens from this moment on. The house of David is the tribe of Judah. And so this Rehoboam guy reigns over 
the tribe of Judah, almost exclusively. And almost all the other tribes go off and do their own thing. Because they just can't stand this young punk king. And they get their own king. And the kingdom is split. From that moment on, it is not what God intended. Because of a foolish answer from a foolish descendant of David. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, prays and thanks that God the Father for giving him all things. And then he says this. If my clicker will work. He just announces to the people, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in Scripture. This is not just Jesus saying something that sounds nice. This is Jesus acting as the branch from the stump of David, saying, let's go back to your promise. You said if I lightened your yoke, you would serve me as the king. Mm -hmm. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now make good on your end of the bargain. Let's reunite what was split by one foolish answer. That's amazing. And it might be amazing, but there is a problem. If you are a Jew, and you have waited 600 years, have I mentioned that? 600 years for Yahweh to be faithful, and he's supposed to reunite the kingdom. What type of person might be the type of person to come and unite a kingdom? Well, an epic warrior, of course, yet again. <laughs> why would we think this? Because that's always the way it's been done, right? And why would I choose such a fantastic drawing for this particular one? Because they had seen him transfigured on the mountain. Like, they didn't know what in the world this guy was about to do. He's, like, going Super Saiyan right in front of them. He's like, I mean, they're literally asking Jesus. He's walking around like a normal dude, and they're like, are you about to do it? Are you about to, like, overthrow Rome, like, right now? Like, they thought this was going to pop out any minute, for real. Okay? And yet, that is not what they got. What they got was Jesus, and his master plan, again, was to come as a baby in an out-of-the-way town, live his life in an out-of-the-way town, Show up for three years and be so extraordinary, the ancient historians noticed, but so ordinary, if you were there, you could dismiss him, and then die. We know, here, now, in 2019, that when he did this, he united a people in a way that I will articulate next. And it was amazing. But that is not what they expected. That was not what anyone planned, and that is not what they wanted. But I'm here to tell you, it was better. Mm. Lastly, in several places in the Old Testament, something that must have sounded like heresy is promised. That they won't define themselves. Israel will not define themselves any longer by the Exodus. They'll define themselves by this next new thing Yahweh is about to do. That is so crazy. It's said twice in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, 7, and also again, actually before, Jeremiah 16, 14. And don't forget last week in Isaiah 43. Remember, Isaiah says, you know, the word of the Lord is Yahweh says, I'm about to do something new. I'm, it's going to be so amazing. It's going to be like a road suddenly appearing in the wilderness, like a river suddenly appearing in the desert. And then he says this, but will you even notice? Will you even notice? And Isaiah sets it up by saying, you know the God who delivered you from Egypt? This is what he's saying. Don't talk about that anymore. 
because he's going to do this new amazing thing. P.S. I bet you won't even notice. So this thing is coming. This new thing that's going to define the people. Now it's important to point out, the Jewish people were not dumb for talking about the Exodus. In fact, they were commanded to remember the Exodus. Because the Exodus is what created the people of Israel. God calls Abraham and says to him, you're going to be a people. He has some kids. His kids have some kids. But they're in Egypt as slaves when they multiply. They're under the thumb of the most powerful man and the most powerful monarchy in the world. It is when God removes them from that with plagues and fiery hail and lightning. And remember, they part the seas and all the chariots are chasing them down. And God overthrows the chariots with the water and they celebrate. Man, oh man, that's the event that sets those people free and makes them a them. Does that make sense? It is the defining moment of Israel. And he's saying a new defining moment is coming. Great. What might that look like? If the first time God used his might and power overtly to destroy the most powerful army in the world, you might think it's going to be like a Lord of the Rings moment, right? Like, this is the best gift I've ever found. It's like two minutes long. You know, where something amazing is going to happen. Gandalf's going to come over the hill, you know, or the Rohirrim are going to burst in. All of a sudden, it's going to be the most epic, amazing battle victory you have ever seen in your life. It's, got, it's going to be even more amazing than the sea parting and us walking across on dry land and then Pharaoh's men drowning. It's going to be even more amazing than a pillar of fire you know, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. The exodus is going to pale in comparison. Do you know what God is talking about? Do you know what victory, what battle he's talking about? It's this. He's talking about the cross. That is not on anyone's radar. God's plan, come as a baby, live a fairly obscure life, be someone the historians would notice, but yet you could ignore and then die, does not obviously fulfill that in any way. And yet we know, here now, that that's the Son of God on the cross. And that he is accomplishing something in this moment so extraordinary, we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. You want to talk about uniting a people. You want to talk about the defining moment for a people. The author of Ephesians says it this way. He himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, in other words, by being ripped apart himself, he's ripping apart these barriers, set aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. It's as if the redeemed are so different than the unredeemed. You now with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit living inside you, the good shepherd taking up residence, the king from the line of David living inside you, you are so distinct from people that do not have that. It's like you can't even be thought of as the same type of creature. He isn't just making a people that have a territory. He's making a new type of being. One new humanity is formed by the cross, out of the two, thus making peace, and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. No one expected that. No one expected anything Jesus did. It was not on anyone's radar. No one planned it out. Certainly, 
This can't be understated or overstated. It was not what anyone wanted. It was a disappointment, all of it. And yet, it was better. It was better. So is God faithful? The answer is a resounding yes. But let's take this lesson away, okay? When we look at his means and his methods of being faithful, we see that it costs him a lot. And he's actually proven better than we could have ever imagined. But it is also puzzling. It's not what we expect. It's not what we plan. And frequently, when God shows up and is ultimately faithful, more amazingly faithful than you would have thought possible, it looks like what you would have never wanted. But this is the way God always works. I'm going to make a roadway in the wilderness. I'm going to make rivers in the desert that you won't notice. Or as Isaiah says famously about the birth of Jesus in Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he talks about this man that's going to come and live a life so amazing. The ancient historians will notice, but be so ordinary, you could dismiss him. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Why not? Because it didn't look like anything we'd planned. It didn't look like anything we'd expect. And it didn't even look like anything we'd want. But this Christmas season, let's remember that God is faithful. And if his faithfulness doesn't look like anything we'd expect, plan, or want, take a deep breath and be encouraged. It is better. Here's Justin. Thank you, guys. Jesus, I thank you that you 